The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. All right, well, good morning, Coastal. Uh, you know we're in our summer reading series, but now it looks like we're uh, back in our At the Movie series. Uh, I had the privilege this morning of talking about the uh, book, The Case for Christ, and it is uh, both a book and has been made into a, a movie as well. And so it, uh, how many of you saw the movie, The Case for Christ? Anybody? So a few, a couple of hands out there. Uh, I didn't get to see it either. I knew it was out, but I think I'm just a little stingy and we don't often pay to go see a movie. So I kind of wait for it to come out on DVD. And uh, unfortunately, it's not out yet. It comes out next month. Uh, I tried, honestly, to find it. Uh, I tried to find it on DVD. I tried to find it online and couldn't. Couldn't find it, but I understand it'll be out soon. I want to encourage you uh, to see it. And uh, also, if you haven't read the book, I want to encourage you to read uh, the book as well. So my name is Galen Moyer. Uh, My wife, Perry, and I, we have been a part of Coastal now for several years. Uh, We typically attend here at the second service and know many of you from this service and from life groups and from working out in the cafe. We're out there on a at least once a month, and so we just enjoy getting to know the people of Coastal. We have uh, loved seeing people come and seeing the church grow in the last several years, moving from the old building over here to the new building and seeing uh, it fill up in these multiple services. It has been a, a pleasure to get to know you. One of the things that we have appreciated most is just seeing and hearing the stories of people's lives who are changed, and that is really uh, that's really the greatest uh, case for Christ is is changed lives, and so uh, we want to continue to hear uh, your stories. Pastor Chris and Janet, uh, they are in Los Angeles uh, with their visiting their daughter Lydia this week. Our whole church staff was out in L.A. Uh, they had a uh, church systems boot camp conference, and uh, Pastor Chris and Janet are going to take uh, this week and spend it uh, visiting with uh, with Lydia. This um, case for Christ, uh, you saw the, the trailer there, but Lee was an atheist, and he began to investigate the claims for Christ, not to prove the case for Christ, but actually to prove against the case for Christ, because he had a situation where his wife became a follower of Christ, and he felt threatened by that. He felt like he was losing his wife and losing his family. And so he was somebody who was qualified to do this kind of case. He had a law degree from Yale. Uh, he was an award-winning journalist from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, he was a courtroom analyst and legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And so he understood how a court case worked. And he decided to take and see if he could develop a case literally against Christ to prove that Christ was not for real. And uh, as you uh, saw in the trailer, what ended up happening was all of the evidence piled up and he ended up realizing that case uh, for Christ was that he was real. And he became a follower of Christ. Now this originally took place back in 1981 where he uh, did this and developed this, but he didn't write the book until uh, the late 1990s when some others uh, challenged him to write. And if you are interested in this kind of thing, apologetics, he's written a whole series of books, The Case for Christ, Case for Creator, The Case for Easter, and there are a number of others. And I would encourage you to, uh, to pick those up and, and read them. I'll have to say that I, uh, I read The Case for Christ quite a number of years ago, uh, uh, a number of months back, uh, 
Pastor Chris kind of mentioned that we were going to be doing this and asked if I would be uh, interested in speaking while he was out of town. And, and then when the different books uh, came out, which ones we were going to be doing, uh, I looked at the different books and uh, there are some that might have actually resonated with me a little bit more even than this one. But there was just something about this and the direction it's going and the way I see our world going and a particular question that I have been processing in my mind that brought me to a point of trying to figure out, is Christ real or is he fake news? Number one in your outline, Christ is a fact, not fake news. Now for me, it's not a matter of myself struggling to know if Christ is real or whether he's fake or not. I determined that a long time ago. But what I see in our culture is a constantly changing culture trying to figure out what they believe and why they believe it. And trying to figure out how their beliefs can stack up when challenged. And um, I have been in kind of a, a personal process this last uh, couple of years, just particularly as we went through the election and I saw that there were good people on both sides of the issues. You know, there would be people who were sold out for this candidate and people who were sold out for this candidate, people who have this particular mindset and people who have this mindset on the uh, totally opposite side. And yet I realized those are all good people. We tend to assign values to different beliefs when people believe differently than I. But what I realized is I, I had people I love and respect, even people within my own family who view things very differently. And so I started to process, how is it that we believe the things we believe? Why is it that we've come to believe the things we believe? Why is it that I believe the way that I believe? And have I really done the study to determine that the beliefs I have have value and merit and can stand on their own? Or have I just somehow accepted secondhand uh, information? And so in this day when we get all this information pushed at us and we have terms like fake news and alternative facts, if something said loudly enough and repeated enough as truth, it begins to be a part of us. We absorb it and we can't help it and we try to sort it all out and, and make sense of all of this stuff that's coming our way. Well, I had heard uh, somebody said something a couple years ago that stuck with me. He said that when we read the Bible, we tend to not read it looking for truth. But instead, we read it looking for the things that support our particular views. And when I heard that, I, I kind of ashamedly said, yeah, I'm guilty of that myself. And, and so I began this process. And as I went along in this, I heard somebody just uh, recently on a podcast describe a term that really stuck. And so I immediately stopped and wrote it down. And the term is confirmation bias. Now, maybe this is a, a technical term, and you're not really, uh, really sure, you know, is that too technical? But simply, it means we see and hear what we are looking for and what we want to see. Now, a good illustration of the way this works in our regular life is this. Anybody bought a new car recently, and suddenly you're driving down the road, and you see hundreds of other cars like the one you just bought. Before, you never noticed them, but suddenly they're there. And it's like everybody else suddenly bought a car like you have. But you know that's not the case. You know the cars have been there all along. You just didn't notice them prior to this. Because you began to look at them. And even though there are cars passing by all the time, you just they become part of the scenery. But these particular cars that are like the one that you have stand out to you because you're suddenly looking for it. Well, I think in our freeway of information that we have these days, there's so much information coming and going all the time. And... 
We have all this information and we look for truth in the middle of it and we're trying to make sense of it. And so what we do is we can't sort out and process all the information. So what we focus on is the information that supports what we already believe. And we tend not to process all the other stuff, the stuff that would challenge us and and maybe even in a positive way, but instead we just kind of push it aside. And what we look for is facts instead of truth. Now, maybe it sounds like facts and truth are the same thing, but facts are actually just pieces of the truth. It takes all of the pieces of a puzzle to put it together to see what it is all about. And you, uh, you know a lot of good facts, but you really want to know the truth. We want to we understand the truth in regards to faith and in regards to our world. Most of us believe uh, what we believe, not based on our own studies or our own experiences. We base it because it's been passed on to us, either secondhand or thirdhand. It's come to us from sources. You will get some information from me today, and I'm going to give you a challenge at the end to not just accept that information directly as you heard it from me, but to go make it firsthand information where you find out for yourself. So we get a lot of our information, whether it be from church or from family or those kind of things, but we already have a bias that goes with it because of the source. In fact, uh, by the time we get our facts, they've been genetically re-engineered, hormone-infused, chopped up, processed, repackaged for consumption, and they don't bear any likeness to the original truth. Isn't that kind of the way it works in our day and age? It's a little bit like the, uh, the chicken nuggets we had at VBS here uh, the, the other week. I, I remember as the nuggets were being passed out, uh, Chris was over there asking kids what they thought of it, and some were hands up and some were hands down. But I remember thinking, you know, those nuggets look really good. And all the whole time we were busy passing them out, I kept wanting to eat one, but I didn't and I didn't. And finally, at the end, I went and got one from the kitchen, and I didn't want any more after that. <laughs> Because it, as you broke them apart, you kind of had to wonder, is there really any chicken in here? Is this, is this chicken? But that's kind of the way the facts are that we get today in our world. They come to us and we wonder, is there really any truth in it? And so what we tend to do then is we approach the issues that are key in our world today, issues, the hot button topics like um, global warming, nationalized health care, gender issues. If I asked you if you had an opinion on any one of those, you could give me an, uh, an opinion. If I asked you, could you find a story to support your opinion, you could find a story to support your opinion. But if I asked you, do you have a friend or know somebody who has a different opinion, you could say, yes, I know somebody who's just as strong about this on the opposite side as I am. And if I asked you, could they also find stories to support their opinion, you would have to say, yes, they could do that as well. And what ends up we have strong opinions about things we really know very little about. And it ends up dividing us as a people, and we get adamant about these opinions, even though we don't really know if they're fully truth. They might be facts, but not the whole picture. The challenge is, is when it comes to faith, do we approach our faith the same way? Why is it that you believe what you believe? Have you ever stopped to think about it? What is it that makes you come to Coastal on Sunday morning? What is it that determines for you that you are a follower of Christ or a believer? Is it because you look for evidence on your own or because it was passed on to you, maybe by family or by your church? And all of those are good resources, but is it just secondhand faith 
Or is it something that you have really made your own so that when the time comes in your life where you're forced to think through things critically, can it stand the test? Or when somebody comes to you who has the opposing view, does it stand the test? See, I think what happens a lot of time when we have these strong opinions about things we really don't know that much about, when we're challenged and suddenly we back down. And in our faith, it's often the same way. Do we have the foundation? Do we have the roots to be able to stand when the heat is on? Jesus described this in Scripture in a parable that he gave when he talked about seed being scattered out on the ground. And it went on all different types of soils. And some soil, it sprang up quickly, like on the rocks, rocky soil. It sprang up quickly, but when the sun came out, the heat beat on it, and it withered away. Is our faith like that? Or do we have a root system that can stand up when we're challenged? When we hear the fake news, the alternative facts, we hear somebody else's opinion, does it sway us? Are we able to stand? So number two, our point is Christianity is unique. We live in an age of increasing pluralism in our our faith and moral relativism. You know, there was a time when I grew up in the South where I kind of just thought that everybody was Christian in some form or another. And it seemed like everybody that we ran into, to some extent or another, had a, a Christian background. But it's not the case anymore. It's a changing world. I'm a hospice chaplain. I continually get into homes and environments where situations where faith has not been a part of their life. And we start from a whole different perspective. So it's important for us to, as we run into people and we face situations where they have very different views of the world than we do and very different views of of faith, we need to know where we stand, how to communicate what we stand, how to do it in a loving manner, how to not be arrogant or mean with it, how not to push it on others, but to simply know firmly what we believe and why. So if we're going to do that, we need to understand a couple of simple facts about faith and the different faiths. Number one, religions contradict each other. Now, it's impossible that all religions could be right. Now, it feels right to say, oh, they're all okay, but there are some very specific contradictions in faith. One of those that I want to share with you this morning is that the religions view God very differently. As followers of Christ, as Christians, we look at God as one who is personal, who cares about us, who knows us and knows our needs, but he is one God. Hinduism, on the other hand, teaches that God is in everything. God is all pervasive. In everything that has life, they assign a spirit to it. And God is in all of those things. So when we have one God, we call that theism, when we have many gods, or God is in everything, we call that pantheism or polytheism. But Buddhism, on the other hand, is very different yet. Buddhism actually denies that God exists. Did you know that? Honestly, I've done uh, religious studies, and maybe I knew it and forgot it, but uh, I had to look it up and affirm it's true. Uh, Buddhism believes in the person not God outside of the person. And so they are actually atheists. That may sound strange that there's an atheist religion. But if you see, they're very different and polar opposites from one another. So not all religions can be true. Important truth for us in our world today. 
Number two, the second one, Jesus claimed to be God and Christ. Now, it's important if we're going to say that we are followers of Christ to know who Jesus claimed to be. Start with Jesus believed that he was God. And this is unique to any religion. There's no other religion, no other religious leader, prophet, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna. None of those claim to be God. They claim to be prophets. They claim to be good teachers. But none of them made a claim to be God. Now, that's not a popular thing to do in our day to say that Jesus was God. But it wasn't popular in Jesus' day either. In fact, it was what got him killed. John 5, verse 18 says, As a result, the Jewish leaders tried to kill him because in calling God his own father, Jesus was making himself equal with God. So Jesus believed he was God. He says it explicitly. He told the Jews in John chapter 10, I and the father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the father. For which of these do you stone me? Oh, we're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, not only did he claim to be God, but he also claimed to be Christ. And that was something that was very different. Christ, his name is not Jesus Christ, first name, last name, Christ. He's Jesus who is the Christ. The role of the Christ is a role they play. I'm a chaplain in my life. Some people call me Chaplain Galen, but that's not my name. Chaplain is the role that I play in in life. The role that Jesus fulfilled in his life was the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Christ. And so the Jewish people who had been through captivity and for years and years had longed for somebody to come and bring them freedom, they assigned a role, the Messiah, the Christ, and they were looking for and longing for And so here in Mark chapter 14, they ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, the New Testament writers all own that, not only in the the gospels, but also all throughout the rest of the book of Acts And through the epistles, Paul time and time again refers to Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ or the Christ. So here's the challenge for us. If Jesus claimed to be God and Jesus claimed to be the Christ, then either he was who he said he was or he was delusional, he was a madman, or he was simply crazy. Now, in our day today, it's not so controversial to say that Jesus was a good teacher. It's not so controversial to say he was a good man or to say he was a good role model. But it is controversial to say that Jesus was God or that Jesus was Christ. The problem with this is, as many people like to say, oh, I believe that Jesus was a good man. I believe that he was a, a great prophet. But... If Jesus was a liar who claimed to be something that he wasn't, then doesn't that negate the goodness? And how can he be that? So we can't have one or the other. If we accept him as a good teacher and a good prophet, then we also need to accept his claims that he is God and that he is the Christ. Now, he authenticates this with prophecies. 
There were many prophecies that were made throughout the years leading up to the birth of Christ. Hundreds of prophecies that were uh, from hundreds of years back. Jesus backs up his claims by fulfilling dozens of these old prophecies. They're literally like a thumbprint that only fit Jesus. You know, when I pull out my phone, I use my thumb to sign on to my phone. If I pulled out my phone and handed it to Scott, hopefully it's not going to open up when he puts his thumb on it because his thumbprint is very different than mine. And each of our thumbprints, and we understand that. But when we understand that the thumbprint of the prophecies were a description as detailed as our thumbprint of the Christ, and we see that only Jesus fits this, then we understand that it's very unique to him. Now, there are people who say that Jesus, when he came along, he just read and studied the prophecies, and then he decided, I'm going to be the Christ. I'm going to fulfill those prophecies. Now, is that possible? Well, to start with, there have been other people who tried this. There are other people who came along claiming to be the Christ, and the Scripture tells us that others will come as well. But it is so specific that there's no way he could have done that. For example, some of those things had to do with things that were totally out of his control, such as where he was going to be born and when he was going to be born, which he had literally no control over. Peter Stoner is a mathematician, and he calculates the odds of one person Any one person being able to fulfill just eight, just eight prophecies. He says the possibility of that is so incredible of one random person being able to fulfill that, that the odds of this are a one with 17 zeros following it. And he says if you had that many dollar bills, you could lay them end to end from the earth to the moon and back 20 times. And then imagine, out of all those dollar bills, there was one dollar bill that was a counterfeit. And you had to randomly go, put you in your spacesuit and send you out there and you could choose one dollar bill and you randomly chose that one and it was the one. That are the odds of even fulfilling eight of these prophecies. And yet, Jesus fulfilled over a hundred of them to the smallest detail. So that's even more incredible than our specific thumbprint. These prophecies that were written hundreds of years before his birth, one of them is an illustration in Psalm 22. It says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote this 300 years before crucifixion even existed. See, when you think about it, crucifixion, piercing hands and piercing feet, that was something the Romans came up with. That didn't exist 300 years when when David wrote this. And so there it was no way for it to be other than simply that God had designed this and worked it out. Next, let's look at some miracles of Jesus. Not only did he validate his claims through the prophecies and fulfilling prophecies, but he validated his claims through the miracles that he performed. You know, whether it was the people who were indifferent to Jesus, it was the people who were neutral to him, the people who opposed him, or the people who supported him, everybody seems to acknowledge that Jesus did some extraordinary things. There are writings from Jewish writings and other writings that were not part of the Bible that referred to the historical man named Jesus and the incredible things he did. In fact, the term they use is sorcery. We think of sorcery as evil. 
But when you think about it, it makes sense because they didn't understand the stuff that this man Jesus did. The things that he did were magical, things that they couldn't give an explanation to. And so even in those writings, it refers to the historical Jesus as being a sorcerer, a person who did incredible things. The New Testament and the Gospels, they refer to at least 40 different miracles that Jesus performed. And then the clincher of them all, which combines prophecy and a miracle, is in Matthew 16, verse 21, where it says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And then he did it. He fulfilled it. See, it would be one thing for me to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to be killed. I could kind of make that happen probably. But it's another thing to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. I don't think I could pull that one off. But Jesus did. And it says, not only did he do those things, but it was, he was witnessed after he was alive by more than 500 people. That was a claim that validates his claim about being Christ and about being God, greater than anything else in history. Number three on your outline, the resurrection is real. The word authentic is used a lot these days. Um, so much of our lives are fake. I referred earlier to fake news and stories and that kind of stuff. And we're in a day of Facebook where we know we only see the very best of people and not the worst of people. And, and yet it's the image we get and we don't really know how to, to sort through all of that. And I think it's harder at this time in history than any other time to know what's real and what isn't. And we're a generation of people that are just looking for authenticity, for something that's real. And our truth comes to us in little sound bites and we're aware that it's not really what it seems, but we don't quite know what to do with it. And so when we look at our Christianity and we start to realize nothing else in our world is real, we start to look at our faith and say, is it real either? And the message of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. Is the resurrection real? So if this isn't real, then we have nothing but nice stories but it's not something worth giving our life for. But if Jesus rises from the dead, then he validates his claim that he's God and that he has the power over sin and death. So let's look at five E's of evidence for the resurrection. Number one is the execution. Now, you heard that on the clip in, in the beginning. I don't know if it stood out to you, but it said very clearly there is no historical evidence that anybody ever survived a Roman crucifixion. They were very good at what they did. In fact, if you saw the passion for Christ, you saw that it was, it was almost miraculous if you even made it to the cross after the way they had whipped you and and destroyed you and made you carry the cross. And then they made sure that nobody ever survived. However, there was a theory that has been promoted over the years that Jesus didn't really die. It's called the swoon theory. That maybe he just passed out. And then they put him in the grave. And then the disciples came and stole him away. And then he was still alive. So he didn't have to come back to life because he didn't really die. 
But historically, there's no evidence that that ever was the case, that anybody survived a crucifixion. So we have a death. We have an execution. Number two, we have the empty tomb. One of the most convincing cases for the empty tomb is the fact that nobody questioned if there was an empty tomb or not. The disciples said there was an empty tomb, but the skeptics also said an empty tomb. They just said that the disciples stole the body away. So we have an execution and we have an empty tomb. Thirdly, we have the eyewitnesses. Now, you know what a legend is, right? A legend is a story that contains some element of truth, but yet over time it is embellished and it becomes bigger and the story grows and it grows and we know somewhere there might be an element of truth in it, but it's hard to really know how much truth there was because the story becomes so big. One of those stories is Robin Hood. Now, you know, we know that, you know, there probably was a person named Robin Hood who stole from the rich and gave to the poor, but we don't really know the details of that and whether it was, and it surely wasn't like all the stories that we, we hear. We hear the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and yeah, there might have been an element of truth there somewhere, but it's become glorified, and stories are continually uh, written about, about King Arthur. Another one is the Fountain of Youth, and if you're uh, my age or older, you hope they hurry up and find uh, the Fountain of Youth, because uh, uh, we want that, that one to be true. Uh, but the secular position on the death and resurrection of Christ would be to say that this is a legend, just like those legends, just like those stories that have been passed along, the resurrection story, oh, it was a story that Jesus died, and yeah, then somebody saw him alive, and they passed this story along, and it grew and grew and grew. But it, he wasn't really alive either. It was that swoon theory we talked about, or they're just putting on a, a story to make it sound good because they believe in him, and they want followers. But uh, it becomes a, a legend rather than reality. But scholars tell us that there's something about this that doesn't fit because it takes at least two generations to be removed from the truth So if you look at it like this, if there was somebody that was still here alive today who had actually been alive when Robin Hood was around, you actually knew the man and you knew his story, and yet you read the stories they're told about him, you would say, that's not the way it was. I knew the real, yeah, he was a good guy, but he wasn't that big hero that the story, that the legend tells about. The same way if you have people who are alive that knew the resurrected Christ You couldn't say that was a fable or that was a legend because there are people who there say, I experienced this and I know this. So it takes a number of generations to be removed from the people who actually knew the truth of the facts before a legend can begin to grow. And in this situation, we have stories about the resurrection of Christ that go right back to the beginning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Now see, this letter was written 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, which in terms of historical and ancient literature is very close to the original source. But not only that, historians tell us that even though that was 20 to 30 years, he was repeating what he's saying is, I passed on to you what was passed on to me. So he's not saying, I'm the originator of this saying. What has been passed on to me, I'm passing on to you because this is important for you to know. This is important truth. 
And it became, what we're about to see here, became a creed of the church. What creeds are, they're truths that we communicate together. So how about we do this together? Let's pick up there where it says Christ died for our sins. And let's read this together. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. You see, maybe some of you grew up in churches where you had creeds that you'd read together in church and they were communicating truth so you would remember them. The early church did this. And the studies show that probably even within months of the time of the resurrection of Jesus, the church started repeating this creed, or at least elements of it, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, he was seen by Peter and the 12, after that he was seen by more than 500 followers at that time. You see, this is more than just a letter that Paul wrote. It was a truth that the early church lived by. Number four, then, is the early accounts. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if it, you had a source that goes back close to the beginning, it was pretty unusual to have sources in ancient literature that go back that close to the truth, and back to the original source. But the New Testament Gospels are our source. They're our most reliable source that we have for the records of Jesus. So it's important that we know if they are authentic or not. And our beliefs rise and fall on whether they have validity or not. So, well, if you had one or two sources, it's pretty amazing. But for the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that people actually saw him alive, there are nine ancient sources, both inside the Bible and outside of the New Testament, that confirm his appearances alive after the resurrection. And on a historical level, it's important that we understand that there are thousands of partial or complete manuscripts of the New Testament, of the Gospels, that have literally preserved this passage and these truths so that we can know that they are real. Ancient literature has nothing like this anywhere else. There's no other book, no other ancient literature that has anywhere near even, even the fragments or the whole manuscripts that we have for the Gospels. And if we didn't have that, even in early years, within several hundred years of the birth of Christ, the early church fathers were writing, and in their writings, we would be able to pick up and piece together all the stories of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. But not only that, in addition to that, there are extra-biblical or outside-the-Bible documentations that support all of these valuable and important details about the life of Jesus Christ. Now, one more E, the emergence of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, he says in verse 37, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. 
So here's Peter boldly proclaiming, and the, the verses prior to this, he is out boldly proclaiming the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. Just a week prior to this, Peter, along with the other disciples, they had been hiding, they'd been running, they'd been scared for their lives, and now what's different? They're out boldly proclaiming because they have seen the resurrected Christ. It changes everything when you've seen and experienced the resurrected Christ. Not only was he communicating this message, but people were responding to the message. Thousands of people were responding to the message. And to understand how significant this is, it's a little different in our day. But in that day, for them to think about taking on new rituals like communion as we do, to them that was blasphemous to do that. For them to give up sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial system and believe that Jesus was the once and only final sacrifice for their sins, that would have been totally against everything that had been part of their culture for all of their life. Not only this, they would have been ostracized from their families and from their faith communities and from the temple. You see, the disciples went from being fearful and doubtful to boldly proclaiming, even to the point of being willing to die for their faith. They experienced 20 to 40 years of suffering, martyrdom, execution, without being willing to recant their belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You see, when you know that something is true, you're not willing to give up on it. Imagine this for a second with me. We're part of the early believers. But we know that it's all a scam. We're, the, we're on the inside. We've been told that Jesus didn't really die, but here's the story you need to tell people. He died, but he didn't rise again. But here's the story you tell. Whenever somebody asks, you tell them that Jesus rose. Now, 40 years later, the same group are gathered there. Guards rush into the room and they say to us, you need to recant and stop telling this story about Jesus rising from the dead or you're gonna die. If you wanna walk out of here alive, you need to recant. If we knew it was a lie, we'd recant. We'd save ourselves and we'd walk out the door. Now imagine another scenario. Again, we're that original group of believers. We saw the resurrected Christ. We saw him alive. We experienced him. We're in the same gathering and these guards come in again and they say to us, you recant and say that Jesus did not rise from the dead if you want to walk out of here alive. But we would say, I, I can't do that. I saw him. I experienced him. He is alive. I know it. You see, very few people are willing to die for something that they know is a lie. And the fact that these early believers were willing to go to their death, proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, is a testimony to the truth of that reality. So there's two responses I want us to make today. Number one, don't take it from me but find out for yourself. Don't live in a world of second-hand faith or second-hand facts. Find out for yourself. Acts 17, I like this story. It says the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. 
You see, that's a sign of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth and spiritual hunger. When you're willing to go find out for yourself, when you come Sunday after Sunday and hear Pastor Chris, and when you leave here today after hearing it from me, I want to encourage you to go and today, go get the book, read the book, or listen to the book, The Case for Christ. Find that out for yourself. But more importantly than that, I want you to go to the book, the scriptures. Go to the Bible, read the scriptures, find out what they say. Don't just take it from your pastor or the person up front. Take it from the truth of scripture as you read it yourself. And secondly, I want you to encounter the resurrected Christ today. Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you want to be free Free from the power of the brokenness of sin in your life? Free to live a new life? Free to live victoriously? Then encounter the resurrected Christ. He is still alive today. He desires to connect with you. He desires for you to reach out to him. He desires for you to receive the sacrifice that he made for you. He was broken, but he arose from the dead. Victorious over the power of sin and death. And he simply invites you to surrender your life to his plan. You've been listening to a message from Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.